welcome back to What the HR Podcast. I'm Jesse Novi, an HR business partner with CH Robinson. And I'm Mike Tool, HR technology consultant with SAP SuccessFactors. Welcome back to another episode of What the HR. Today, we are rejoined by a guest that we had on episode 20, Dr. Ben Granger. On episode 20, we talked about listening strategies. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about quiet quitting. If you haven't had a chance to listen to episode 20, uh, do us a favor, go back and give it a listen. Dr. Granger is excellent um, so much that we wanted to have him back to talk about a different topic. So to give a little bit of a background on Dr. Granger, he has spent more than a decade building, running, and optimizing employee measurement and management programs across thousands of organizations, including numerous Fortune 500 companies. As chief workplace psychologist, Ben leverages original research to offer insights into macro workplace trends, employee experiences, and the future of how we work. As head of employee experience advisory services, he and his team of organizational psychologists consult with large companies to evolve their employee listening strategies to solve people and business challenges. His research has been featured in academic and practitioner forums, including Forbes, the Journal of Business and Psychology, the International Journal of Training and Development, the the Academy of Management, and the Society for Industrial and Organizational Psychology. Ben is a certified XM professional and earned his PhD in industrial organizational psychology from the University of South Florida. Please do us a huge favor. And if you are enjoying our awesome guests like Ben and the topics that we're covering on the podcast, go out to your favorite podcast platform, leave us a rating and review. Those ratings and reviews go such a long way and help helping to ensure that our podcast is getting out to other HR professionals and business leaders that would benefit from our topics and our guests. As always, we hope you enjoy the episode and happy listening. All right, Ben, thanks for joining the show again. It's great to be with you both. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for those listening, um, Dr. Ben Ranger had joined us uh, to talk a little bit about employee listening strategy a couple of years ago. And recently, he's been doing some some research on quiet quitting. And so we wanted to have him back, discuss what his findings are, talk a little bit more just generally speaking about quiet quitting and, and what he's seeing from the employee listening side. So Ben, we did give an intro prior to the episode, but if you want to tell our audience who you are, what you're doing today, and then we'll get into it. Happy to. So I basically wear two hats at Qualtrics. One is as the chief workplace psychologist doing a lot of, at least participating in a lot of the research that we do broadly on the employee experience, but also beyond just the employee experience, things like how does the employee experience drive the consumer experience or the customer and the patient experience? So a lot of the research we do, um, I'm very heavily involved in. And then the other part of my job as the head of employee experience advisory services, we work really closely with a lot of our customers to help implement these employee listening strategies, but not just put the listening in place, but identifying what are those trends and themes and insights, and then what do they do with it? And so I'll draw upon both of the experience we've had with some of our customers dealing with this trend of quiet quitting, what they're worried about, what they're concerned about, how they're addressing it, and as well as some of the research that we're starting to do on this topic. Mm-hmm. 
So I think let's just, I think starting right there is perfect. Just in terms of quiet quitting and the effect it's having maybe on customers that you've talked to, um, generally speaking, what is it? Because I think people have seen the term, but it could mean different things. So what is what is it in your mind? And then also maybe dive into some of the impacts that you're seeing it having on these organizations. Sure. As, a, as an organizational psychologist, when I saw that term pop up, there's a couple of things that crossed my mind. My knee-jerk reaction was, this is noise. This is new wine, you know, in an old skin or the, or vice versa. Swift, switch that, right? Old wine in a new skin, right? Uh, this is just a repackaging. And that's going to get out of the popular press in no time. Mm-hmm. And I was wrong. I was wrong. It has lasted. It's it's proven that it has staying power. And there's a few reasons I think that's the case. As I started to look more deeply into this, as we as a team at Qualtrics started to look into this more deeply and have discussions, what we started to realize was that this might be a more modern signal of employee withdrawal. And employee withdrawal is pretty common, right? May not be the terminology may not be familiar to everybody, but anybody in HR knows what this is, right? You show up to work late. You don't show up at all or you quit. So lateness, absenteeism, turnover. Those are the classic behaviors that would fall under the umbrella of withdrawal. But there's also this component of psychological withdrawal that starts to happen before and concurrently where the physical behaviors show up or manifest themselves. Quiet quitting in the environment that we're in, where lots of people are working in hybrid, lots of people are working in remote environments, quiet quitting may just be a more modern and harder to detect signal of withdrawal. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the ways I interpret this, this trend. I also don't think it's new. I also, you know, I do think people have been doing this for a very long time, but it's more salient right now. It's more salient because we're in a hybrid environment. We're in remote environment more so than we were. And what I, another reason I think is very salient and it's had staying power is because of the quietness of it. That scares organizational leaders because it's one thing to be able to see somebody not showing up to work. Right. It's one thing to know that you were late to work, but if it's quiet, if it's hidden, that could be more disastrous because it could go on for a long time without us knowing. So another way that we have looked at this is the opposite of quiet quitting. In other words, if somebody's choosing to quiet quit for whatever reason, what are they not doing? And specifically what they're not doing in quiet quitting is they're not going above and beyond. And per the the general definition of quiet quitting, it's not quitting one's job, but it's only doing what they're required to do, right? Mm-hmm. What's in the job description? I'm only going to do my tasks that I'm required to do because that's part of the contract. That's part of my psychological contract as I define it. And so outside of that, I'm not going to do anything else. But from the research on above and beyond behaviors, there's many words for it, contextual performance, citizenship behaviors, whatever you call it, or, or simply going above and beyond. There's plenty of research out there that suggests that those behaviors are highly beneficial to the organization. They're highly beneficial to the customer experience, and they're actually beneficial to people engaging in those behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so that 
that becomes, you know, one of the challenges we'll talk about later. But anyway, long-winded answer to your question, that's how we're looking at quiet quitting currently, uh, what it is, what it isn't. And again, modern signal of withdrawal. And what is the impact of not having those above and beyond behaviors going to have on the person, on the customer, on the organization? Mm-hmm. And Jess, do you have a question? Yeah, I I didn't know what you're going to ask though next. And I, I just didn't want to get too far down the road here. I kind of had a follow-up. I thought that was a really yeah. good description, Ben. And you had said something at the beginning when you were talking about whether or not you thought this was kind of fake news. I know that wasn't your term. That's my term. Um and then you realize that it wasn't. Do we feel like quiet quitting it has a um, direct correlation with our new working environments, or do you feel like quiet quitting is something that's probably been around for a while, but is maybe just more prevalent now? We've obviously seen a huge decline in, um, you know, the the great what did we call it? The the great resignation, um, people having different thoughts and feelings about their expectations at work, what they expect of their employer, employer's overall happiness, et cetera, et cetera. I do think they're related. We, we have sporadic data to support that. Uh, I can't say we have, you know, we've done a study directly to test that. But based on the data we have seen, based on the conversations I have seen, I do believe that the salience of quiet quitting is very much related to what we've all been through over the last three years. And Jesse, you mentioned a few things. Expectations are higher. Mm-hmm. That's part, that that's potentially part of it. If you think about quiet quitting as somebody saying, you know what, the psychological contract that I have with my employer, my employer's reached that by expecting me to do stuff that's not in writing, right? Or they're now telling me they want more out of me. And I personally feel like that's a breach of the contract, right? The psychological contract. That is potentially due to the fact that people are setting very different boundaries for themselves when it comes to work. We saw that play out as you alluded to. So I do think these things are related. However, I also believe that quiet quitting has been happening for as long as we've been working. <laughs> it's It just hasn't necessarily been as salient as it is today. So mm-hmm. I do agree. I think there, I think it has happened, but I also think it's salient right now for some very obvious reasons. And then just one last kind of follow-up question on that. Would we also with quiet quitting specifically, think about um, the differences between maybe an employee giving signals to their respective leader that, you know, hey, I might be a flight risk, I'm not happy, voicing some of their concerns, is we're just seeing less of that and employees are less willing to be vocal whether through a through a formal listening strategy like an employee engagement survey, for example, and or let's just say through like a manager checking in with somebody during a regular one-on-one to say, how are things going? Let me collect some feedback from you. We did this study recently that partially speaks to your question, which was we found that compared to people who are currently employed with an organization, candidates felt much more comfortable 
having tough discussions about expectations, about pay, about benefits. And that was interesting because what it was suggesting is that before you become employed, you feel like, or the average employee, and American worker in this case, in this study, felt much more comfortable having those discussions about their expectations and sensitive topics like pay before they were employed. Why? Becomes an interesting follow-up question. Going back to the psychological contract, once that psychological contract is built in the mind of an employee, it is harder. It is harder for them to step outside of what they think might be part of that contract. It's not to say that there aren't bold employees out there who are like, you know what, I'm going to take a stand and and have a direct conversation with my manager because there absolutely are people who will do that. But that's harder for a lot of people to do. And what I do, what we do see is that we are finding more signals of withdrawal and quiet quitting and some of the predictors of that burnout, lack of perceptions of inclusion, for example, are predicting those behaviors. We're seeing those pop up more in confidential surveys, meaning that people are willing to share that feedback. They want the organization to know that these things are not being met. We have these needs. They're not being met. But we're seeing that at a higher rate than people who are willing to go have that direct conversation with their manager, right? It might just be a very uncomfortable conversation given the power of the psychological contract in the mind of an employee. Mm-hmm. And so, or perhaps the fact that they've maybe tried to drop nuggets of information or they've you know maybe tried to communicate to their manager but have been met with res- resistance or- That's a good point. Um, perhaps- That's a good point. They already feel like their uh, their organization is not led by inclusive leaders who actually take employees' feedback into con- you know into consideration. Excellent point. Very possible. So through all all of that, I wrote down more questions. So, but I, I want to go in order here. And the, the first one that I had was when you think about quiet quitting, and now that it's out there and that knee-jerk reaction of companies may be, well, we need to identify this and how do we do that? Um, I'm curious what the risks are in going on what maybe like a witch hunt, I would call it, within an organization to find out like who is quiet quitting and maybe misunderstanding some of the cues that employees are giving that would you know, predict that they are quite quitting. Do you know what I'm asking there, Ben? I'm I'm just curious the risk so. that this that we have here with trying to identify it within a company. I think so. There there is the potential for people to respond to this and point fingers. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a potential here for leaders to look at this trend and and say, you know, blanket statements like, oh, this is a generational thing, right? Oh, all these people are entitled, right? Or something to that effect. And worse would be going out and like, we need to, we need to root this out, right? And thinking, thinking of it as a cancer or something toxic in the organization. Yes. Yep. That's just not productive. And that's the argument I would make to anybody. And and, and I would make the same argument to employees who are blaming, right? Pointing the finger in the other direction. That's not productive. What is the, what's the end goal of that? What are you going to accomplish? 
And what I think is the most productive response is for everybody to take a little bit of ownership here, especially organizational leaders. Because going on a, a, a witch hunt, as you as you put it, Michael, or blaming people, what good is that going to do? Right. If people are quietly quitting, they're going to hide from you in plain sight. Anyway, it's going to be difficult to find those people. And even if you do, you're not you're not solving the root cause of this, which is the things that are driving people to quietly quit in the first place. So the productive response here is for leaders to say, it doesn't matter who's responsible. We should assume some responsibility. What's driving this? Go listen to people. Understand why, you know, why are people, the people who are quietly quitting, we don't need to identify them individually. What groups of people are quietly quitting and why? Are we mm -hmm. seeing trends and patterns there? And then what do we need to go do to solve those problems that are causing people to choose that path anyway? That's what I think the productive response is and what I would argue to anyone on either side of the equation. Mm -hmm. And are you guys working on that on your side in terms of researching those reasons as to why? We, we absolutely are. We have some studies in flight right now. Mm -hmm where we're trying to build some proxy measures of quiet quitting. For example, how likely are you to go above and beyond is an item that we commonly ask in, in our engagement surveys that we run with our customers. And we're doing some external research right now to identify what predicts that. What mm -hmm. are some of the drivers, the actionable things that organizations can do or levers they can pull that will have a likely downstream impact on somebody's likelihood to go above and beyond again, because we know how valuable that is. And that's also a good proxy for if people are saying they're not likely to go above and beyond, it's likely that those people are quietly quitting or likely to quietly quit. Yeah. And as Jess had mentioned earlier, kind of the remote work, maybe pushing us into this. I'm curious on your thoughts on the idea of going above and beyond when we were all in the office, it was much more visible. And so people maybe on a career path that wanted to be noticed and they knew they would be noticed if they did it. Do you feel like there's something to that? We're being remote and not being seen to me to go above and beyond, right? I don't know if my boss in the corner office is even going to notice that stuff. Michael, I think that's a great point. I think it's very possible. And again, it goes back to what Mike cause somebody to quietly quit. If they feel like the psychological contract's been broken, if they feel like they're going above and beyond and it's not getting recognized, if they feel like there's this inherent expectation that they do these behaviors, but there's no recognition or incentivization to do it, then you add that to working in remote, working in hybrid, just like quiet quitting might be a more hidden signal, above and beyond behaviors might be more hidden. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting hypothesis. That is also one of the actions that we think organizations can take here, which is if we think about, right, go back to the, the, the classic, I shouldn't say classic, it's not that classic, but the original definition of quiet quitting that was put out in social media, which is I'm going to do exactly what I'm required to do, exactly what's in the job description. That raises a really interesting question for me. Why don't job descriptions include above and beyond behaviors? Why not? Yeah. If that's so important to the business, and we know it is, 
We also know how critical it is for customer experience. I'll play out a very simple example here. When we look at the interaction between employee experience and customer experience, one of the things we do see is that there's different drivers of customer satisfaction and customer delight. Those are two different constructs and delight is much higher order level of attitude that a customer has about a brand. Delight drives repurchase and Mm -hmm. expansion and word of mouth more so than satisfaction. What drives customer delight? Going above and beyond, right? That's what creates customer loyalty. So we know those things are really critical, especially in high touch environments like B2C, airline, retail, banking, Mm -hmm. really critical. Why not list those out explicitly? Make that part of the contract, psychological and physical. To me, that's a glaring miss. And it's Mm -hmm. just something we've, you know, hey, here's our job description has got the core task. Why not lay these out? Why not lay those behaviors out and create incentivization structures, especially social, social recognition that reward explicitly people who engage in those behaviors? And I want to be clear, this is not an argument to say we should be moving from 40 hours to 50 hour work weeks, right? This is not to say, hey, you should be doing 10 hours a week of above and beyond behaviors. No, 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 no. Cars have one gas pedal, right? You press, there's a reason for that. You press the gas pedal, you don't press two. So it's not about doing more, more, more. It's about prioritizing the behavior and recognizing that the above and beyond behaviors in some cases may be more valuable to the business and to the employee than some of the core tasks that we normally lay out in a job description. Yeah. yeah. You make a really good point too. And it's quite timely because a lot of organizations that do year-end reviews will be, you know, preparing to um, execute on those here really soon. And most organizations that do some sort of a formal review, usually mid-year and year-end, will have a scoring system where you're rating employees on meeting expectations and or exceeding expectations. But those tend to be very objective and ambiguous to both the people leader as well as the individual contributor on what you know exceeding expectations means or going above and beyond. So if organizations would do a better job of documenting that, I think it fixes a, a lot of things. It fixes performance management. It makes the communication better between the employee and the leader. It may help the employee better understand how I might be eligible for a promotion or aligned to a specific job family or job profile better. Um, so I just think that that kind of opened up Pandora's box to um, a lot of valuable outputs from having that documented well. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that, Jesse. I also wonder if the push for work-life balance over the past, I mean, it's been more than just during COVID, but it, it's been such a push that sometimes when I when quiet quitting first came out, I to me, it, I kind of thought like, okay, so now are we being punished, right, by focusing on the life aspect of work-life because now we're being told that we're quietly quitting. Um, do those have any correlation, Ben? It appears so based on some of our early data that perceptions of balance, perceptions of burnout, of well-being, which are all very 
highly related to each other are predicting some of those proxy measures of quiet quitting. Mm -hmm. So it appears, it appears those are related. And this goes back to something you alluded to earlier, Jesse, which, you know, we have a lot of evidence over the last three years that people's expectations have changed, but people are looking at work. I shouldn't say a blanket statement, maybe not everybody, but lots of people are looking at the role of work in their lives differently than they have in the past. And we have plenty of evidence for that. So that very well could be, you know, and, and, and the common to build on that, the common thing I'm hearing from HR leaders that I work with and from our surveys is that people are seeing work more as, you know, I'm not living to work, I'm working to live, yeah. right? More of that shift in that direction. Mm-hmm. And so the role of work is for some being minimized. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, that's not a bad thing. Yeah, That's, you know, I really don't believe that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's, we have to work together, both employees and organizations to figure out how do we balance this, right? Yeah. How do we give people when they're on vacation, protect that. Do not work on vacation. When you're sick, protect that. Do not work while you're sick. You know, norms like that, I I do believe that as we evolve those norms, as we can evolve organizational norms to catch up to where the future of work, which is now is, and to be clear, I think the norms are lagging. Yeah. Once we can catch up a little bit, I think we will see less of a problem with, with quiet quitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we're taking care of some of those underlying, we're giving people the tools and resources where they need to recuperate, to have that family life, to be fulfilled in that family life. And to be clear, I think it is absolutely possible to design a workplace that is both helping employees feel like they have that balance that they need. They have that integration of work and life that they need. That's good for them that they're happy with their family life and they're happy with their work life. And specifically because of those things, businesses will be more successful. Mm -hmm. It's not opposing goals. Right. One thing that you, that we haven't talked about, but I feel might fit into this category and with the rise in inflation is a hot topic right now is compensation. So are we, have you seen in any of your data, Ben, any sort of correlation between satisfaction and or less quiet quitting with, um, you know, more appropriate uh, total rewards packages, whether it's just base salary or a combination of, you know, base equity bonus, for example? Pay has emerged in the research that we've done over the last year as one of the most salient components of the employee experience. I'm still going to stand my ground that it's a hygiene factor, right? You know, I still believe it's a hygiene factor, right? You give somebody a raise, you give somebody a bonus. And the effect of that is, is uh, somewhat fleeting. You know, we get used to that very quickly. And that's largely because, well, I, I shouldn't say largely because one of the reasons for that is because compensation creates a cognitive response, not an emotional response. But what ties employees to an organization longer term tends to be more emotional than cognitive. And so 
that's where you get deeper level of commitment, for example. It's not to say that somebody somebody could be in a job forever and you know see it as transactional. Totally possible. And there's people out there who do that. But I think that's becoming less common. And we're seeing evidence that people want to work for organizations that have a bigger goal. We're seeing the emergence, not just of pay, but the importance of corporate social responsibility. We're seeing an emergence of how important it is that the company I work for shares my personal values, deep values. And it's interesting that you see those things come up at the same time, right? But it's, I think it's because pay is salient right now. We, the, you know, our money is worth less today. Mm -hmm. That's, that's a fact. And a lot of people feel like they've gotten demotions because of inflation. So that's real. We can't ignore that, right? When, when I say it's a hygiene factor, it does not mean that it's not important. But what it what it does mean is pay and compensation appears to be at the level of it's predicting whether people feel like their expectations are met or not, mm-hmm. more so than predicting whether someone's engaged or not. Mm-hmm. That's been an interesting finding of late that we've we've seen show up in our research. So, so on that note, then, if a employer is constantly seeing, pay as an item that's showing up as a dissatisfied um, item for employees during a our ANA employee listening strategy and annual employee engagement survey, for example. But they're also seeing other indicators such as culture, um, such as management engagement, um, other kind of important factors that most organizations take into consideration when they're thinking about total engagement of their employee population as well as morale. Would you say that with your, and I really loved how you indicated that um, the comp is a cognitive response, but what we're looking more for is an emotional response. Would you then consult with a company to say, put less emphasis on comp because of that and focus more on your culture and your leadership to enhance that emotional response? I would do it slightly differently than the way you described, Jesse. What I would say is both the the, the, the comp and the things that predict more of an emotional connection, like value alignment, those are at those are solving two potentially different problems. They're related problems, but they are different. So the pay issue is if if you if you continue to see pay show up as a low area, and you have evidence that you're not able to attract the talent you need because you can't pay them, right? Or you're not paying up to par or you can't retain your top talent because of pay, then you absolutely have to address that because that's it's, it is it, it is critical to attracting and retaining the right talent. But that's a slightly different issue than what is going to emotionally connect all employees to to the business how do we get um how do we get them intrinsically motivated to go above and beyond uh naturally how do we get them to really get immersed in their work and get in a flow state when they're working for example pays not a lever to pull for those things generally right the effect of pay and increasing pay on those things is going to be fleeting most likely for most people but when people feel like we have a common goal. I believe in this goal. That those are the things that create the intrinsic motivation 
to go above and beyond to help a coworker, to stay late and help a customer because I really genuinely believe in what we're doing and I find value and fulfillment in it. That's the emotional, right? Mm. The stuff we talked about before is the cognitive. I'm either going to join this company. If, if the company can't meet my pay needs, I'm not going to join, right? Hey, th- my, I'm grossly underpaid, so I'm going to leave. Those We have to adjust both, but both pulling those two levers, we're, we're addressing different outcomes. Really well stated. If we use sound effects in our podcast, I'd put like clapping in the background right now. <laughs> That's right. So when we've talked about, let's say, turnover, you know, what what's the cost? You always see stats out there, right? This is the cost to the employer. Have you guys done any research around quiet quitting and what it's costing employers and how important it is to fix this? Not yet. Okay. That would be a dream to, to jump into some of that research and look at the cost. However, what we what we have done is we've looked at it, and we, we've alluded to this a bit already, but we've looked at it in the lens of the service profit chain. And it, uh, some HR professionals will be very familiar with that, some may not. But very briefly, it was a model that was published in Harvard Business Review uh, back in, I think it was 2008. And the model basically demonstrates how employee experience has a downstream impact on customer experience and then on business outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so basically what it's saying is take care of your employees. If you can meet the, their needs and if you can motivate them, they're going to take care of your customers. And when you take care of your customers, they're going to be loyal to you. And because of that loyalty, you're going to see you know better revenue and better profitability through consumer behaviors. And it's a really well-established model. And so what we have done, like in that model, as you break it down, one of the components of the model is when employees are engaged and when they have a good experience and when they feel like there's a sense of well-being and when when there's value alignment and all those things are in play, then they're naturally going to go above and beyond. Mm-hmm. And those behaviors strongly predict customer satisfaction, customer delight, customer loyalty. So we haven't calculated what the cost is, you know, for our organizations yet. We haven't done that research quite yet. But I do anticipate, right? If you assume there's a subsegment of your your organization, right, who is quietly quitting, then that means. some of your behaviors that are driving customer experience are going down Mm -hmm. and you're likely to see that show up in your customer NPS scores and your customer CSAT and your overall transactional satisfaction surveys. You're going to start to see that show up. That actually could be one of the objective measures that organizations look at to determine whether there might be some quiet quitting going on, especially in B2C where you have employees who are very, very high touch with customers, like in a call center. Mm-hmm. That, that makes sense. And you also mentioned that like long-term quiet quitting is, it's not just harmful to the organization, it's harmful to the person, as to the employee. And so I'm curious how, and maybe you don't know, but how do employees or just, we'll just call people, right? We're all people. How do we look internally on this issue and understand what areas maybe I am falling into this bucket and it's better for me if I can get out of it? 
this i'm going to just put a disclaimer out here and say this is the piece where we have the least amount of actual research <laughs> that we're mm -hmm. doing so a lot of what i'm going to share here is coming from well well-known psychological theory but also personal observations and i'll be mm -hmm. very careful to clarify like where it's a personal note versus a research note sure but i start with david mcclellan's theory of human motivation it's a competing theory with the more common and probably more well-known Maslow's hierarchy, right? Everybody knows Maslow's hierarchy. It's got the nice visual. Mm -hmm. McClellan's theory is, if my memory serves me well, is a little bit more well-supported. And what it states is that humans are generally motivated by three big drivers, affiliation, social, right? Building social connection, achievement, and power. And work is an avenue to achieve many of those things. We go to work, we build relationships, we know how important the social aspects of work are. It's It helps meet our need for affiliation. Work also helps our need for achievement. Some people have higher levels of need, need for achievement, but we all have some of that, right? We all have, we're all on a continuum and we're at some point in our continuum. And my continuum might be lower than yours, Jesse, and Jesse's yours might be lower than Michael's, but that's okay. We all have that range where we need that and power as well. And so work is an avenue to meet those foundational psychological needs that we have as human beings. Mm -hmm. And so you, if you follow that logic, now you start to think about, well, what does it mean for someone who decides that I'm going to you know, let, let, let's say for hypothetically, somebody says, you know what? I think this quiet quitting's for me, right? And regardless of where I work, that's that's how I'm going to operate. I'm going to only do the bare minimum. I'm going to, this always reminds me of office space with, with Peter after he goes through the, the hypnotherapist and he he's quiet quitting, right? Yep. He's literally, but but that's an extreme case. That's not what people, you know, people who are really quietly quitting or not gutting fish at their desk, right? They're, yeah. they're, they're doing their core task. Pete, that was an extreme case. But like if, imagine somebody like Peter continuing to do that, they move on to the next job and they continue to do that and they move on to the next job. Those people would, might actually be sabotaging themselves mm -hmm. because they're reducing the, the ability to leverage work to meet the need for affiliation, to meet their need for achievement. They're contributing less to the organization. Paradoxically, that could harm the individual. Yeah. If I'm accomplishing less, if I'm giving less of myself to other people, in the short term, that might be necessary, right? It might be critical. Long term, I find it hard to believe that would be healthy. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think as we talked about being remote, the, the first thing you talked about affiliation, that was almost pulled from us, right? As a result of being pulled out of the office and something that, and as I asked that, I, I was thinking along the lines of for people that may be listening that think maybe, maybe I fall in this bucket. So I think quiet quitting can also be something that's, you don't necessarily know you're doing it. You maybe kind of fell into it right over time. And people are looking at it now and saying, maybe, maybe I am doing that. And maybe I don't want to. And that that's what I was alluding to. And, and so those three things that you mentioned, there are things that you're suggesting 
would uh, impact somebody positively if they can fulfill those three buckets, correct? I think so. And you bring up a really good point, Michael, which is people may not have like consciously decided to move into this. And and I've, I've sort of framed it that way throughout our talk, but I think you bring up a fair point, right? It may not necessarily be a conscious decision. It might Mm -hmm. be a subconscious, a psychological barrier that people put up when they're under extreme pressure in those cases. That's that's ex- precisely where quiet quitting might be essential for someone mm-hmm. short term. But yeah. but yes, I agree. Like we have to remember work is not inherently bad. You know, work can be very good for us. I've done a lot of reflection on this myself, right? My mindset for work is very different than it was five years ago. And it's largely because of what I've been learning from the research we've been do- doing over the last years. And I've also realized for myself at least that whether I'm looking forward to something, am I looking forward to, you know, working a bunch of hours tomorrow and, and going way out of my way to help a bunch of people? Uh, You know, I don't know. I don't, I can't say that I'm like looking forward to that, Mm -hmm. but my wife always reminds me, you know, when I'm like, Hey, I'm I'm probably going to have a rough day today. You know, I got this and I got that and I got that. And she always checks me and she says, wait until after work and then say that. And oftentimes what I find is those days where I'm really not looking forward to it, the days where I'm giving the most of myself Mm. are the days I look back on and say, wow, I got a lot done. Mm -hmm. That's great. I have just a a curiosity question. You know, as we're talking about all these factors that impact quiet quitting, and we've talked about things like things that could improve people being more engaged, um, such as, you know, compensation and strong leadership, inspirational leadership, inclusivity, et cetera. Have you heard and or seen in the data at all, Ben, that organizations that are very supportive of things like long personal leaves, sabbaticals, things that give employees like really a true opportunity to disconnect, step away from work, know that their job is going to be there for them when they return. Maybe they're compensated during that time frame. Maybe they're not, but it still allows them the job security to step away for a decent amount of time, like a month or more, and then come back. Any any comments or, or data that points to helpfulness for organizations that offer that kind of a benefit? We don't have data specifically on that type of benefit, but what I can say where we did do some research is we did a study a few months ago of American workers, a large proportion of them are saying that work is the primary source of their mental health challenges. I think it was close to 60%. We also saw that a large percentage of American workers, I think it was right around 50% work while they're on vacation. And so you, you know, it doesn't directly answer your question, Jesse, but Mm -hmm. what it does suggest is that there's people that are still in a rhythm and they're still following these outdated organizational norms or, and another one I should add is that there was a significant amount of people during the pandemic, close to 33% globally were working while they're sick during Mm -hmm. a global pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. That's, that's nutty to think about, but it's, that's what people were just being honest about it. Um, And and look, I say that like, I'm on this high horse. I'm in this moral authority here. I did the same thing, right? There was some times where I was working and I shouldn't have been working because I was sick. So 
I, you know, I'm not pointing fingers here. I'm, I'm guilty of the same thing. But what that suggests to me is organizations, absolutely, that's a lever that we should start thinking about pulling. How do we protect vacation time at all costs, right? How do we protect giving people a longer leave? How do we remove the stigma of career breaks, for example? And one of the things one of my brilliant colleagues, Dr. Cecilia Herbert, pointed out is that historically, you look at somebody who may have taken a sabbatical, you look at somebody who may have taken a, you know, several months career break, and that might be a red flag on somebody's, on your resume to a recruiter. We need to rethink that, you know, because those are, those might very well be people who know themselves really well, you know, and they know they need a break and they need a recharge so that they can re-enter the workforce with renewed energy and emphasis. So I do think that there's, the the iron is hot for a lot of those changes. And sadly, we don't have, you know, direct data to support that point, Jesse. But mm-hmm. if I had to take an educated guess, I would think that it would have an impact in mm-hmm. a positive way. I really like that you called out US specifically in your comments, because as somebody like myself who works for a global organization and I work with um people leaders, um, individuals just in general that work in countries where they have holidays um, and lots of them. They have extended parental leave, um, just lots of opportunities to really step away, be engaged with their family, disconnect. Um, it becomes an ongoing frustration that we are so far back. That's just my soapbox comment. I presented that study, the results of the vacation study with a group of EMEA, uh, European CHROs, not that long ago. And they were, I got, I got a response that was a mix of appalled and funny. Like they laughed and they were like, my goodness, that's nuts. So I hear you. Have you done anything around, I know we have to wrap soon, but uh, we're, as we talk about this, I keep thinking of, I keep seeing the four day work week. Have you guys done any research on that and is it proving we could that do a whole another podcast on maybe that we should maybe we should <laughs> you know what let's sign up because we actually did a lot of work on that and we have some really interesting thoughts and findings on the four-day work week the the short answer is a lot of people are really interested yeah but yeah. then the reality sets in when we do trade-off analysis about it you get a different perspective because there's absolutely some, you know, on the surface, hey, who wouldn't want an extra day, you know, of the week to relax and be with your family? But that's not how it works. It doesn't work in a vacuum, mm-hmm. right? If we yeah. if we do that, there's going to be other changes. And the question becomes, are people willing to make those trade-offs? Some, some may be, some may not be. Uh, so anyway, until next yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that one has to marinate a little bit, right? So that we understand those trade-offs. I want you to tell everybody where they can get in touch with you, Ben. But also, we talked a little bit during this podcast about the research you guys are doing on this. And I'm curious if you can let our audience know when that research will be available and how they can get their hands on it. Absolutely. The We have a great blog the the qualtrics blog and very easy to navigate to if you go to qualtrics.com we have a employee experience blog where you can look at a lot of the summaries quick easy consumable summaries of some of the research that we alluded to we also run a 
very large annual employee experience trends study. Uh, that's one of the ones I alluded to briefly, but we we have some really great global data coming out in November of wow. this year. And so that will be available. There will also be a webinar that'll be very uh, highly advertised by our marketing team. And then another resource that I always point people to is the XM Institute, which stands for the Experience Management Institute, xminstitute.com. Great free practical resources for mm. not just HR professionals, but CX professionals, market researchers to dig into a lot of these tools and practices and all that good stuff. Awesome. Well, Ben, thank you so much again for joining us. We will circle back on the four-day work week because uh, I'd love to have you on again. So thank you so much. Sounds great. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of What the HR. If you want to hear more episodes like this, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're listening through now. If you enjoyed the podcast, do us a favor and share with your network, your boss, or your CEO. Help us get this podcast in front of anyone who wants to know what HR looks like when done well. Also, if you have any questions for show topics or people you'd like us to interview, please email Mike and I at podcast at tcsherm.org. That's podcast at tcshrm.org. If you want to find out more about Twin City Sherm or our upcoming events, please visit our website at tcsherm.org. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And finally, if you're not already a member of Twin City Sherm, please use code WHATTHR at checkout to receive $20 off your membership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next episode. <laughs>